0: Hello, um, I'm John Bradbury from the EMA's People Experience Practice and uh, in this series of EMA costs we've been looking at some of the key issues, key themes, key insights around the whole employee experience as it is in New Zealand in, in 2023. One of the key trends that we've noticed is an increased interest in organisations and organisations given an increased priority to wellbeing in, in the workplace. And um, I'm very pleased that today I have with me a guest, Dr Georgie Toma, who is an expert in this area. Has done a lot of research and a lot of work with New Zealand organisations uh, through her company, Heart and Brain Works. So um, I'm looking forward to the conversation today to find out more about uh, the well-being strategies in organisations and the research from, from Dr Georgie. Um, But I think really in terms of that, really, I just really ask you, Georgie, to to introduce yourself a little bit and the work that you do.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me here, John. I'm very excited. Um, So my work revolves around uh, well-being. And this term, historically, used to be considered a fluffy term. You know, how do we define well-being? Um, So maybe I'll start off by by sharing a a definition of well-being from um, a research perspective, right? So when we think about well-being, it is the point of balance between um, challenges and the resources we have in order to meet those challenges. So when we look on an organizational context, it's important for us uh, to take into account that employee wellbeing, health and safety go hand in health. So when we think about health and safety, we know that the legislation requires us, uh, requires all companies um, in New Zealand and also in, in other countries, that I work with, such as Australia, to um, ensure so companies have a legal responsibility to ensure the health and safety of their employees. That includes not only physical safety, but also psychological safety, right? So when we think about psychological health and safety, it is important to understand that well-being on an organizational level falls in that particular category. So well-being represents that point of balance between job stressors or job demands and the resources that an employee has in order to meet those demands so stressors here is not necessarily used in a negative way Uh, a stressor is really a neutral term it becomes negative when we are dealing with um, a prolonged a frequent or an intense exposure to uh, stress in the workplace, right? So job demands or job stressors, they could be workload, work pace, um, an an unhealthy relationship with a supervisor, um, lack of role clarity, lack of autonomy at work. So those are some examples of job stressors that can have a negative impact on employee psychological health. And then job resources, um, could be a positive relationship with the supervisor and colleagues, role clarity, autonomy, organizational trust, so on and so forth. So, in my area of research, I take a very data-driven approach to well-being in the workplace. So, what I mean by data-driven is that we are actually measuring those job stressors, and we're measuring the impact of on employee psychological health and safety so that organizations can have a clear picture, quantifiable picture of what are the areas where they have to focus, the areas that actually pose a risk to employee psychological health and safety and what they can do about it. That's kind of the gist. So this is both my research work, which I do for the University of Oakland, um, but also obviously for my own consultancy that I lead.
0: Fantastic. So that's that's a very clear sort of picture of of where where you see this standing. And there's a number of things I want to pick up on in there. I guess, first of all, um, you made a comment about sort of health and safety Mm. um, in terms of the importance to organisations of that. And um, I found that very interesting, the analogy you draw there, because we do a survey with our members to look at their HR maturity. Mm. And one of the things we've noticed come through from that is organisations see huge importance to everything to do with health and safety, including well-being. Yeah. However, while organisations feel that they're very well equipped and have the right processes in place around the more traditional sort mm. of. Physical health and safety, on uh, sort of well-being, psychosocial um, uh,
1: hazards. Hazards. Yeah.
0: They feel less well prepared and less sure what what to do. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, you're sort of nodding not me. I, I'm taking that in yeah. line with your experience yes. of organisations yes. too. Yes. Um, so, so given that, um, what you know, what do you think of the sort of starting point for organisation? Mm. Who's who's at the moment thinking? We, we want to do something about, mm. we need to do something. Wh- where, where should they start?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Mm. So um, first I want to say spot on on your observation that mm. organizations are... Um, A lot of them at the beginning of this journey. And actually, this mirrors global trends. So one of the things that happened after COVID is that we've seen an increase in rates of stress, anxiety and depression worldwide. And we certainly have seen those rates in the workplace. And we've also seen an increase um, in awareness of the importance of mental health at work. Right, And so that was followed by a series of legislation changes in several countries, in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, and most likely it's going to happen here as well. So this legislation changes. Um, I'm going to talk specifically about Australia now because it's our neighbor and um, in many ways our our history of legislating health and safety has been intertwined. So in Australia, what we have now um, is the fact that it's a legal obligation for all businesses to... Um, identify, eliminate, or reduce psychosocial hazards in the workplace. So psychosocial hazards, it's a mouthful. So what (laughs) what is this? What is this? Basically, these are the job stressors that I talked Mm -hmm. about before, right? So those aspects of work that either because of frequency, duration, or intensity are constituting a hazard to um, employee psychological health and safety. So, for example, um, high workload. If someone is exposed to high workload uh, with low resources over a prolonged period of time, there is a risk that that chronic stress is going to affect their mental health, which can lead to burnout. It can lead to the onset of depressive symptoms uh, or anxiety, anxiety. or any other psychological injury, really, right? Yeah. So, it is a new legislation. So, for example, in um, in Australia, in certain states, the legislation has come in effect last year. Um, in other states, it's come into effect this year. But basically it's 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 new so a lot of companies are struggling to understand okay well we have those systems as you said the traditional health and safety they're they're great they're working well but when it comes to psychological health and safety it's a little bit different because the human mind is complex. and one of the questions that I get asked a lot by companies is what you said you know so how do we start right um, and and so first first we need to understand that um, it is important for us to investigate the aspects of work that impact our people. So what aspects of work impact them? As I said before, workload, work pace, how fast someone is required to work. Um, Do they have the resources to do their job well? And what are those resources, right? So ask your people. So basically, if you want one step, you need to ask your people right so you can do that uh, through your managers you can do that through focus groups right yeah the second step um, is to get data I mean there's no um, there's no really work away around that to be honest if you want to do this well and understand what's really going into your organization uh, you need data so for example my consultancy does the psychosocial hazards audits. That's Mm. one of the Mm. types of work that we do. So we go into a company, we have a series of hazards that we investigate, we run it through a survey, we do focus groups and interviews. One of the advantages of having an external person doing them is because we guarantee anonymity for people. So therefore, um, it's more likely that Uh, people are going to be honest about what's really going on right and then we have a specific way of analyzing the qualitative data so that we actually get an objective picture right so with a company looking at those hazards having the data is very important because at the end of that they have what are the top five areas of risk for them and they also have recommendations okay what can we do to mitigate that risk right so having that data-driven approach, I think it's important. Other sources of data that companies can look at um, are their engagement surveys. And one of the things that I want to say about engagement survey is that they are great in measuring employee engagement, right? As the title (laughs) suggests, so they do their job really well, but they're not appropriate tools to measure psychosocial hazards, simply because they don't cover all the breadth of hazards that can exist, right? But they do, they can, some of them provide useful information. So some engagement surveys I've seen out there, they measure some level of employee stress. Yeah. Some measure relationship with manager, relationship with colleagues, right? So some of them measure some little snippets. Mm. So take out those snippets of data that you already have and look at them, right? Yes. Look at stress leave. Look at your attrition rates. Do you do exit interviews? These are all sources of data for a company um, that they can investigate as a starting point to see what might not be working well.
0: Right. So I think what you're saying is there is... um, you know, particularly in smaller organisations or within teams, you could informally do a bit of research yes. to sort of find out. And depending on the level of trust in the team and yep. openness, you might find out some things there that you could do. Yep. That you've probably got, source, so you've got sort of anecdotal, I suppose, mm. information in that sense. And that also there's, there's existing organisational surveys where if you started to look at them, you might start to paint paint a picture. And that, yep. that would give you some idea where yep. to start. But um, what... I think is really coming through strongly there is that this isn't something where it's going to be a one size fits all that mm-hmm. it's going to be about really understanding what it is in your organization that are the the stressors and what what are the, what are the th- in the negative sense and what what are the things that are going to what are the resources that are there that are going to help would, would that yeah. be right
1: Yes that's correct Yeah, yeah. and it is important to utilize that data Mm -hmm. to understand what are the actions most likely to work for you. Because, for example, in an audit, you can have two organizations that have high rates of workload and uh, um, like, High rates of job demands, for example, right? But when you investigate and you break it down and you look, what are the underlying causes? Why are people required to work so many extra hours? You might find out that the solutions are completely different. You might find uh, that for one organization, what's happening here is uh, they have inappropriate systems, right? Inappropriate IT systems. Right. And so because their work is not automated or because the systems don't function well, they're very slow, it takes someone 40 minutes to do a task instead of 15, right? right? And so that backlog of tasks creates right, this, uh, this requirement to spend mm-hmm. extra hours in order to do a task. So in that organization, the priority would be to address the systems of work, right? Yeah. But in another organization, that high workload is actually underpinned by lack of role clarity. Let's say it's an organization that has re- recently gone through a merger and there's lack of role clarity, yeah. right? Who does what? Who is in this new organization, right? And there's also lack, usually role clari- lack of role clarity is also linked with ineffective processes or processes that aren't clear to people, you know? So how do I move this task from team to team, Yeah. right? So, for them the solution would be completely different right so that's why it's important to investigate what are the underlying
0: causes and it sounds like from that you then start to get clear quantifiable business outputs from this like um because i think when you talk about um what what i think you were saying earlier really was there's been this legislation in australia (laughs) Um, companies are struggling to catch Mm. up there. Mm. That legislation is likely to come here. Let's get ahead of the curve. It's a bit of a stick going to be there. But you're saying there's a carrot, I suppose, as well, an incentive to do this in that you can improve your work process. You can improve people's productivity. Oh, yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, this is uh, uh, well confirmed through research Mm. that when an employee is doing well, is in a a, a state of average mental health, let's put it that way, like most of us are in you know, uh, average mental health. And that's good, I mean, you know, we're functioning, we we have good days and bad days, and that's normal, that's that's, part of life, right? Um, Of course, we're aiming to flourish or thrive, (laughs) and that's that's great, and we have periods in our lives when we will. I think it's important to understand, when you measure anything that has to do with human psychology, You have to keep in mind the fact that mental health exists on a continuum. And this continuum is between um, flourishing on one hand. This is optimal mental health. Uh, It means that we are functioning incredibly well. You wake up every morning and you're energized. Um, You're happy about going to work. Um, Right. So that's optimal. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum, which is... um, uh, it has different it, it has different words, but basically it's the idea that we're struggling there, yeah. right? Um, and I think it's important for us to also say that the other spectrum is not mental illness, <laughs> because someone with mental illness can actually exist on this continuum, close to flourishing. So you can live well with mental illness. Mental illness doesn't necessarily mean that you're struggling. Yeah. Right, Struggling means that you are having a hard time to meet the demands in your personal life, in your professional life. It means that a lot of the time you have distressing thoughts, distressing emotions. Right. Yeah. So it impacts functioning. So because we exist on this continuum, um, all of us, even throughout a day, we move yeah. back and forth. Right. It's fluid, human psychology is fluid. And so that's why when we think about systems of measuring this, we need to take that into account. Yeah. Right? And so, um, sorry, cause what was your point? You, you had a really good point, and I wanted to pick up on that, and I uh, forgot because I wanted to talk about the <laughs> mental health continuum. Um, what was it?
0: To do with the sort of uh, carrot of, of doing this yes, for organizations. Yes, yes, yes,
1: yes, exactly. So there is research evidence that shows that when people are in either a, a, you know an average or a flourishing state, uh, productivity levels goes, go up. Right. And uh, there is the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research who actually wanted to quantify this, right? So they, they, they've done um, uh, very interesting calculation. There's a report out, I believe it was published in 2021 or 2022. And they actually measured that uh, poor well-being negatively affects an employee's uh, productivity and decision making for 12 weeks a year.
0: Right, so quarter of the year. Yes, yes, about
1: three months, right? And then they also measured, okay, so what's what's the return on investment if you invest in employee well-being? And then they found that an organization can get up uh, between five and 12% return on investment because of gains in productivity and less time lost. Right. So there is a clear um, incentive, and it's not only um, uh, an ethical obligation, but it is um, very much linked with commercial output.
0: Well, right? I think th- I think that's a very powerful argument for, for, the, for the investment because obviously at the moment people talk about skills shortage, the difficulty of recruiting people, yeah. and... Um, uh, you know, that, that thing where organizations are saying, well, we're really going to have to pivot to and focus on what are the things that are going to make us more productive with the people that are yep. here. And it sounds like actually, if you start at the people end of that equation, you get the productivity from, from what you're saying.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And also I think it's important for companies to have an awareness that if you expose your people to chronic stress, mm-hmm. over time, it will impact their psychological and physical health. Yeah, And the more you um, allow that to go on unaddressed, the greater risk of injury, psychological injury, physical illness. And the greater we wait, the more time we wait, the longer it will take for someone to recover. So don't put your people in a position that you deplete them of their resources to such an extent that they have to go on stress leave or uh, that they struggle, right? Because ultimately, you and your company will uh, be impacted negatively.
0: Absolutely, and the approach that you're, you're, you're taking and you're recommending is very much not a um, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff approach, yes. like one things have gone wrong. This is about, yes. it sounds like, recognizing that, quite frankly, there is more stress around. Are there, yeah. we, we are all feeling a little bit more worn out, and yeah. some people this will affect more than others, and this mm. can have an effect. So. Let's fo- focus on this now before it does yes. become individual problems or larger problems. Like, yeah. yeah. So a starting point then is, right, okay, we, we, we've looked at some anecdotal data. That's convinced us even more. We need to do mm-hmm. something. Um, you know, we want to get some, some data on this to pinpoint what it, is, what it is for us. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'd start to feel, well... If you start to look at a number of organisations, there must be some trends in this, some things that Mm. are consistently sort of of coming out. Are are there any trends? Yes, absolutely.
1: So, as I said, after COVID, Mm. it seems that overall the population's ability to cope with challenges Mm. has been affected. And uh, the interesting thing is that after COVID, we've continued to have a series of some global, some local events that have put pressure yeah. on us, right? Yeah. And so we've, we've, we've had um, a bit of, um, you know, we have the mortgage rates going yeah. up. We have financial worries for a lot of people. Here in, um, in New Zealand, we've had the cyclone. Here yeah. in Oakland, we've had floods. These are just some examples of elements, stressors, environmental stressors, that deplete the resources of an individual. So you take that, and then you have the fact that some of the trends that I've noticed in most workplaces across New Zealand and Australia is that um, there has been high workload because of uh, um, because of staff attrition. Yeah. Right? And so uh, what, what's happened a lot is um, not having insufficient team members meant that the existing team members and the team manager took on more workload. Right. And for some companies that was extended for a significant period of time so that both the manager and the people were developing signs of burnout. Right? So this has been a trend that's, that's been seen a lot, right? And and as you mentioned yourself, resourcing, you know, staff recruitment is still an ongoing issue for for a lot of organizations.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, people being stressed or, or burnt out is, mm. is a reason why people leave organizations as yes. well as, as not giving of their best. Yeah. The other side of the equation, which I find really intriguing at the moment, mm. is I recently saw a report by Elmo Software and it was talking about uh, organizations' recruitment intentions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of organizations are actually looking to uh, expand their workforce. Um, obviously there's mixed things in the market mm. happening at the moment as we know but I found this really interesting lots of organisations looking to expand their, their workforce like recruit new people into new jobs so to employ more people you're going well there isn't anyone out there really to, to <laughs> kind of get to, to, to do this um, so um, it's another factor that is like well organisations are looking for that because they're looking to do more mm. so they're looking for people to do more mm. and you know, with, with groups that are most affected, one of my hypotheses would always be it's, it's the kind of the middle manager is the person that maybe gets squeezed quite a lot um, in in terms of them navigating their own well being. They're thinking about their staff well being. And um, they've got that responsibility for people. I, I just wondered, is, is that a group that you feel needs particular support at this time and particular attention?
1: Yes, yeah. that's spot on. So managers are and have been more impacted by this, and particularly middle managers. Yeah. And in New Zealand, we have research from Professor Jared Har okay. from yep. Auckland University of Technology. And he's been conducting several studies to measure burnout across the population. Mm-hmm. And in... Um, in a previous study he found that managers were uh, i think 230% more likely to develop burnout <laughs> and then he released a, a more recent study and i believe the the newer rates were around 400 something
0: Right. So yeah, it's getting I don't harder remember getting even harder for that yes, group. Yeah, yeah, it was
1: it was just something shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't remember now off the top of my head. I would have to yeah. uh, look at the report again, which is available online so anyone can can yes. google Professor Jared Hard AUT rates of burnout in New Zealand. Um, yeah. So that group is particularly at risk. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say another trend that's come up um, which I think companies don't take as seriously as they should is around company culture, particularly around toxic cultures, mm. right? particularly around cultures that condone disrespect or incivility. So incivility means um, instances of disrespectful behavior or comments with ambiguous intent. right So it's that you're not quite sure, yeah, but you feel disrespected.
0: Yeah, right. it's kind of unsettling. Like, yes. Was I insulted there or yes. not? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah.
1: And um, in back in 2021, there was a e- very interesting piece of research that came out of the US when they were facing the Great registr- uh, resignation <laughs> registration.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's another <laughs> yep. trend that's yeah, that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do another podcast on that's, that. Yeah, register
1: for <laughs> self-care. <laughs> no, um, so during the Great Resignation. Um, in MIT Sloan Management Review, mm-hmm. there is a study published, very interesting piece of research, that looked at, tried to 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 measure, what are the top reasons people change jobs? And they said, could it be just they're switching jobs for more money? Mm-hmm. And actually they interviewed thousands um, of employees and they used Glassdoor reviews yes. and they used this uh, very interesting piece of software to analyze Um, All that data. And they found that toxic culture is 10 times more likely to predict attrition than higher salary. Right. That's really important for us to take into account because uh, a lot of the times companies don't have a direct way to monitor this. They might monitor bullying, Mm -hmm, but I mm -hmm. find that most companies are not even good at that, to be honest. It's just Mm -hmm. something that we would rather avoid. We have the HR systems in place because it's a legal uh, duty, but uh, usually if they're used, it's when the situation is really, really, really serious. Yes. Right? And if something gets that serious, then you have a... (laughs) You have a big problem to solve.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? And so a lot of companies don't look at measuring or investigating incivility, those instances of disrespect. What's really happening in inter people dynamics? Yeah. People dynamics are so important. We stay in a job for the people, that's a big factor, right? It can be an incredible employee resource. And there's actually research that shows that if you have a good relationship with your manager, you are actually more protected from burning out, even when you have high workload.
0: Yeah, because you've got that supportive resource there to to help you. Yeah,
1: it's very powerful.
0: Fantastic. I mean it's it's so interesting that you've linked it through to culture to, to me, because this is another thing we find comes up from members. Members saying, um, you know, we want to do some work on our culture, we want our culture to be to be better, we want our leaders to em, embody and walk the talk in terms in terms of the culture. So um I do wonder about this this link between 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 the two as as you say, both in the positive way but also the, the negative way. Mm. Um but when you say toxic culture, mm-hmm. if you were looking at an organization, what would you be looking for if you were kind of say this organization's got a toxic culture, either overall or in part of it? What would be the, the, the signs yeah, yeah. that might exist?
1: So first and foremost, we look at rates of incivility. Right. So in our audits, we look at rates of incivility. Mm. Um even though incivility is not considered a psychosocial hazard, because we know if that exists, now that's a sign of a problem. Right. Then we also measure bullying, sexual harassment, um, threats of violence, and violence.
0: Right, that feels quite an escalating that's, that's list, an escal- list that's, from that's sort an of straws yeah. in the wind to, yeah. Yeah. And
1: you look, when you measure those things, you look uh, if it is from colleagues, if it is from manager, from subordinates, or from customers or clients. Um, so, the reason why incivility is so important for an organization to track is i'm going to quote here research from um porath and pearson so christina porath and um pearson these are the two top researchers when it comes to incivility and they've been doing work over the last two decades extensive work measuring the impact in organizations So what they found, it's a very interesting report, and I think it's accessible for everyone. If you just Google it, the cost of incivility, I think that that should come up. And they found that um, for people who have been on a receiving end of a disrespectful behavior, over half of them intentionally decreased their effort at work
0: Right, withdrawing. This is yeah. this quiet quitting kind of yes, thing Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. 60% lost time yeah. uh, worrying about the incident. Um, and I don't remember the rest of the statistics off the top of my head, but they're really harrowing statistics um, as to, you know, people choosing to spend less time at work. Yeah. Um, their loyalty to the company decreasing significantly. Their intention to leave the company increasing And ultimately having an impact on attrition rates. Yeah. So it is important. And I think it's common sense. Yeah. I think most people or a lot of people might have had an experience of being disrespected at work. And when you think back at it, when those experiences were repeated quite frequently, did you stay in that organization or did you leave? Did you put in your best work or you were like (laughs) off? Yeah. Right? So... If you think about okay I want to retain my employees mm. and I am I, I I want high productivity I need high productivity yeah. what create the environment where people feel respected and where people feel they have enough resources to meet the demands on their job and you're good to go
0: right so i mean you want to get to that point of being mm-hmm. good to go uh, but if things aren't so good at the moment you know if the culture is toxic and that I mean, it's a pretty big job to turn the ship around and, and make a difference. You know, mm. what, if, if someone's thinking, you know, the culture isn't so good here, we're going to need to change it, what's the timeline that should they be thinking about until it's they're going to have an impact on results?
1: I think it depends on the size of the organization, yeah. the size of the problem, <laughs> yes. um, and the commitment of leadership. Yeah. So I work with organizations, we have an intervention called Respect, Civility, and High Performance and basically when we run an audit so we have the data that this is not going well and when you have executive leadership commitment that change is going to happen um, change is more likely to happen and in a faster in a faster time frame right so the thing is The way you approach this on an organizational level is that you don't necessarily single out particular people, even though you know they might be problematic, but what you do is you present the data, you present your desire, where you want to be, and then your plan of action. How are we going to do that as an organization? Well, from now on, we have these particular values. Part of our performance review is going to be to abide by those values of behaviors Then you train your managers to give feedback with specific, you know, to this particular culture changes that you want to see. And then you institute this program where your whole organization goes through a series. So our program, um, what it does is that it leads an organization through first a process of self-reflection we need to be able to become aware of the reasons why we engage in certain behaviors. If someone doesn't have that awareness or a willingness to change, there's nothing you can do, basically. So you go through a process of self-awareness, then a process of empathy and learning emotional regulation skills. One of the things when I investigate incivility, one of the most common underlying causes it's not necessarily that people wanna be mean to other people or that they have a bad intention. Most of the time is people don't have emotional regulation skills. So they haven't learned them growing up in their families, they haven't learned them at school. And so what happens is when someone is very tired or works longer hours, well, naturally, all of us, when yeah. we're tired and we l- work longer hours, we become more abrupt. We yeah. have less resources to, to be there for yeah. people. That's just natural, right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? But what happens is then you become abrupt. You turn to your colleagues and, and, or to your team and you communicate in a way that has a significant negative impact on that other person and the thing with incivility is that it works in a spiral again yeah. this this is a, another piece of research is very interesting so incivility tends to spread almost like a virus you've been the sub, the, the recipient of incivility and what you feel is that you want to push it back you can push it back on the person who who was the, the you know
0: the instigator the instigator, source, the the instigator, instigator you know.
1: yeah but then Unfortunately, you also pass it on to others. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so it is important to learn a series of emotional regulation skills that very simple ones, but that you can apply, particularly when you feel you are under pressure and your resources are low, right? So sometimes even uh, it doesn't. It's not a lot to learn. It's just simple skills. Sometimes simple scripts. Sometimes you don't have to respond now. Get get a little break. Come back to it in half an hour or tomorrow, right? So doing those emotional regulation skills and then moving forward into a series of behaviors that we co-create as an organization as a team. So people need to feel involved. Yeah. I'm always wary of interventions that are, you know, pre-created uh, some yeah. content. Um, I'm going to deliver to this client and this client and this client because it doesn't work. So particularly with a topic as sensitive, as incivility, as culture change, that's, a, that's where you need to co-create with your people. And you need the leaders at all levels to be there in that room with the people, right? And yes. for that co-creation to happen because they will ultimately have to take responsibility for yep. this, for putting it into practice, all of them together.
0: Absolutely. So although you see this top leadership sort of uh, commitment and visibility yes. around it being very important, it's not then a case of them telling people what to do. No. It's very much a question of co-creation um, a co-creation in terms of what comes up has to be specific to that yeah. organization, the needs of those yeah. people that are there. Yeah.
1: yeah. And the executive leadership commitment to also action, if... Let's say there the the data suggests a particular manager is um, the source of you know um negative behaviors yes. and they can be put on a performance development plan but also a commitment from the organization to actually terminate that contract if if that performance development plan is not reached because uh, something else that comes up right not not often, but it does come up, is that you have a leader that is considered to be performing. Mm. And, but their behavior is toxic towards their own team and towards other team members. And so executive management is reluctant to let go of that leader because yes. of that perceived performance. right? But what they do, and I say perceived performance because they actually don't quantify the loss it's causing in other people, in the talent, in other teams, because of that one person's behavior, right? So.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like there's a thing that you're putting a call out there in a way to leaders to actually be brave and actually not just um, sweep something under the carpet because they're getting the business results and they're so worried about not getting the business results yeah. but to, to make sure that they, they approach it. Yeah. Yeah, or to
1: look at the business results truly in a in a holistic way. What yes. what is the real impact of this person? Yeah, but that's hard.
0: Absolutely. I yeah. mean, you know, I think I think people would recognise that this isn't uh, going to be an easy or quick mm. solution. But it does sound like there's there's practical things that people can start with straight away and just do themselves. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like uh, the approach that that you and your team take is very data-driven, very specific to an organisation, yep. so highly tailored and able to really hone in and accelerate mm. uh, accelerate things for, for organisations. Mm. So um, that's optimistic. I think there's the piece as well around, oh, is this legislation coming? There's there's a need to do mm. something. Um, and, um, you know, you've covered a lot of things that are clearly um, very well researched. I feel almost we need to set a footnotes at the end of this <laughs> yes. uh, podcast for people to uh, <laughs> reference. Um, but, you know, just a sort of—I suppose—my final question for you. Yes. You know, this is an area that you're involved in that you're passionate about. But how optimistic are you about really making change happen in, in this area, both individually as organisations and, and as a wider society? How optimistic are you about it?
1: I am very optimistic, actually.
0: Yeah. I
1: think it's been one of the gifts of COVID, if, if we can—if we can say that this mm. pandemic has had a gift. Um, I am very optimistic. So. For a couple of reasons, one, seeing the legislation change, mm-hmm. that is a good thing. I think because it forces organizations to pay attention to this particular aspect. And if you think back at um, the place we were at with health and safety, right, it's a similar place we are we are in now, right? It's the beginning, and so I think over the next ten years we'll get in a in a in a good place um, in this respect. Uh, the other reason why. I am optimistic is because people's literacy around mental health, around emotional regulation, around psychological health is growing. And I think that is important because the more we develop this knowledge and self-knowledge, the better humans we are, right? So we're, we're in, in some way the ethos of my work is Uh, is actually there's two main lines in the way I work, right? So one is, yes, we have to look at the workplace conditions, those stressors. But uh, on the other hand, um, on an individual level, I firmly believe we are never at the mercy of external conditions, whether it be cyclones or whether it be a toxic workplace. We are never at that mercy, we still have a lot of personal power, right? Right, And that personal power is how we choose to allow that experience to affect us, right? How we choose to accept that experience, to manage our emotions through it, the decisions we make, our coping mechanisms, right? Whether I choose a coping mechanism such as drinking alcohol after work to relieve pressure from work, which is, by the way, one of the most widespread coping mechanisms, right? For people, you know, whenever I get stressed at work, I stop exercising, right? Because I have to work longer hours. Then I start working at the weekend, Sunday afternoon. I'm checking my work emails because I don't have time during the week, right? And what do I do? Get that one glass of wine after work, then two glasses of wine, right? That's, it's, you know... So that's a coping mechanism that is not helpful. Yeah. Because alcohol, first and foremost, there's so much evidence that on a physical level, it is a precursor to so many illnesses. And then on a psychological level, it affects the way your brain uh, functions, the way your brain interprets reality, right? So whether I choose a coping mechanism like that or I choose a different coping mechanism, such as no, I'm going to stick to my exercise routine or I'm going to do yoga before sleep because it allows me to sleep better, right? And I just watch a YouTube video of yoga for 15 minutes and I do those stretches in silence allowing my brain to rest, right? So I believe we do have on an individual level, great power and I, I, more and more people are aware of it so yeah that's why i'm i'm actually very hopeful
0: very good. Well, I'm very pleased that you're hopeful about it. <laughs> you're leading us in, in, in the direction here. I'm certainly one of the people that are. so, And you've shared so much of that today. And I think terrific, actually, to come out of all that talk about this research here, and what organisations to do, to actually come with some really practical things that we can all think about at an individual mm. level. Like, am I maybe upping my alcohol intake at the mm. end of the day just to make myself feel better? Am I dropping out of social activities or mm. particularly uh, sporting or exercise yeah. activities that I used to do? because of work in some yeah. way and am my st- is there starting to be creep of my emails mm. into my weekend therefore my family life so yeah. I think that's um, a really helpful kind of brings it into a very personal perspective at the end mm. um, and obviously I'd like to thank you very very much for this conversation there's been been so much richness in it and so many so much data and you've got such a clear optimistic approach to it so thank you for that. Um, I'd obviously like to thank everybody who is watching, watching this or has watched this. Um, we really hope that this EMA cast has given you some practical ideas and some insight into the research and work that's going on uh, to help organisations improve well-being of employees. Um, so thank you all very much for, for listening today.